5, verses 15 through 17. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. hear the word of God. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one man, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, for your word. We thank you for the sustained emphasis of Romans and of Ephesians, especially those two books, but also really all of scripture, which emphasizes to us the abundance of grace the abundance of grace that we uh, are entitled to receive, that we are able to receive through Jesus Christ, your son. We pray that 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 glory and the riches of that glory might appear to us with fresh light and new power this morning. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Verses. 15 through 17, just like verses 18 through 19, which obviously follow and will uh, be the subject of the next sermon, are some of the most uh, theologically dense verses that we find in Romans. And I realize that's saying a lot, but they are. And verses, uh, well, I, I think all of them, verses 15 through 19, contain the real essence of this new section, verses 12 through 21, which is a comparison between Adam and Christ. You remember in verse 12, uh, Paul began with the comparison, the first part, as in Adam, only he didn't complete it. Even so, Christ. That's what you would have expected, but he didn't. He had too much to tell us introducing the first side of the comparison about Adam. Before he could get to Christ. Uh, But once he gets to the end of verse 14. He uses that interesting phrase. Which we saw last time. Who is a type of him who was to come. That is Adam is a type of Christ who came later. Adam in his historic person. As we've been considering him standing as the head of a covenant. Place under the covenant of works. One uh, on behalf of all, so that the fate of all was tied either to his obedience to the covenant of works or his disobedience to the covenant of works. In this, Paul says in uh, the end, at the end of uh, verse 14, that Adam was a type of Christ who came after Adam. He was a type of him who was to come, which tells us that their significance To humanity, Adam and Christ was identical, or at least it was one of close correspondence, so that you cannot think of Christ in his relation to humanity without thinking of Adam as well. And likewise, the reverse. You cannot think of Adam in his relation to to humanity 
without thinking of Christ on the other side. To think of one is to think of the other. And that's what Paul is doing here. He begins, verse 12, as in Adam, the federal head, all sinned and thus all died. Yes, but you see, once you get a hold of this idea of federal headship, and you understand the significance of Adam as a federal head to the rest of humanity, you really can't leave things there. You can't leave things with Adam. You feel immediately the need to say, outlining the historical and the covenantal significance of Adam, so also Christ, the many are justified as in Adam. All sinned and the soul died. So also in Christ, the many are justified and the many will reign in life. And so the formula which pervades these verses and which is becoming now clearer as we come to verse 15 and which I hope is now becoming familiar and easy as we assign a large place to the covenants, as Hugh Martin says, the formula is simply, as in Adam, so also in Christ. What God was doing in Adam for humanity, he later did in Christ. And so we find Paul here in characteristic fashion, having made this statement and introduced the idea of typology, that is seeing Adam as a type of Christ at the end of verse 14, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, goes on uh, to express what he meant. He completes uh, the parenthesis in verses 13 through 17 by telling us the sense in which Adam was a type, a type of Christ. And then in verses 18 and 19, he completes the comparison between Christ and Adam, which he began but did not finish in verse 12. And so the way to view verses 15 through 17 within this parenthesis of verses 13 through 17 is, I think, as Martin Lloyd-Jones expresses it, as a parenthesis within a parenthesis. Verses 15 through 17. Their purpose is to explain the phrase at the end of verse 14, Adam who is a type of him who was to come. And we saw... Uh, last time, the idea of typology is that of a parallel. There exists between Adam and Christ a parallel which is true of no one else. As Adam stood over humanity and the fate of humanity was tied to Adam, there is no one like him, not even the angels, except this one, Jesus Christ. He's the only one like Adam. In their relation to humanity, they are exactly the same. They are placed in the same position over the rest. And so we find in other places, Christ is either called the second or the last Adam, indicating Christ's similarity to Adam, while at the same time excluding everyone else. There are no other Adams. There are only two. And the reason there are two and not one is obviously because the first one failed so miserably, as we've been considering in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And uh, that miserable failure will continue to stand out in, uh, in the midst of this comparison. No, there are not one. There's not one, but there's two atoms, Christ and Adam. And can we not in this admire the wisdom of God? For is it not better let us realize, to be found in Christ than in Adam. 
And in that sense, are we not thankful that Adam fell, if only that we might be found in Christ instead? Such is the thought I once found, though I've never found again. I don't know where I read it, but the thought I once found in reading Edwards. If any of you could help me locate it, I would be grateful. But I'm thankful that Adam fell, if only I could be in Christ instead. How much better? Well, that really becomes the thought here. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The important overarching thought that controls the passage throughout verses 12 through 21 is that of the parallel. The sense in which Adam was a type of Christ. The sense in which Christ is the anti-type of Adam. The one who fulfills, the one who perfects, the one who finishes. But, and you you may remember, this was the thought I closed with last time. Just as soon as you begin to uh, appreciate the, the parallel and the fundamental similarity between Adam and Christ, you immediately notice something else. And this is what Paul notices and wants us to notice. You see at once how much better Christ is than Adam. Which I've already been saying. You, you, you notice, uh, as in verses 9 and 10, so again here in verses 15 through 17, the idea of the much more. How much more we get in Christ. You look at these two men and you cannot help but say, Christ is simply better in every way. I understand there is a comparison. And seeing... Uh, the comparison between the two, the, the fundamental similarity in their federal headship, helps me to understand the manner in which Christ is my Savior. But what impresses me, no, what impresses me most when I put these two men side by side is what separates them. It's what causes them to differ. It is the way in which Christ uh, stands supreme by far. In a superlative sense. And that's what we find in verses 15 through 17. Almost surprisingly. It is what Christ is the anti-type. Adam who is a type of him who was to come. That's what he says. At the end of verse 14. Verse 15. What he stresses. Is their fundamental dissimilarity. And so these verses become a sustained contrast. The comparison between the two, the similarity gives occasion for Paul to contrast these two men. And so the formula here actually is slightly different, which is why it ought to be considered a parenthesis. The the formula from verses 12 and then verses 18 and 19 is, as in Adam, even as or so also Christ. It's a parallel. But that's not what we have here. What you find in verses 15 through 17 is, uh, actually the King James I like most, it's not as, not as. Verse 15 and verse 16 begin like that. Not even as, but not as. Or, Or simply as it's put here, the free gift is not like the offense. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. And so assuming Assuming their similarities, that of Adam and Christ, what is important now to see, once we see and appreciate their fundamental similarity, is what separates them. The formula now becomes not as, 
And not only what separates these two men, but also what separates all who belong to each. The ways what we have in Christ and what Christ does for us is unlike Adam and his work and those who belong to him. And so the great overarching idea of these verses, verses 15 through 17, can be stated in this way. What we have in Christ is far more than we ever lost in Adam. What we have in Christ is far more than we ever lost in Adam. In other words, the effect of Christ's work is not just to take us back to where Adam was before he fell. No, the effect of Christ's work is to take us beyond it. Beyond where Adam stood before he fell and to place us in a position that we would find ourselves if Adam had obeyed. But even then, we can still say Christ does more than that. He does much more than that. Much more than placing us back where Adam was, and even much more than placing us beyond the probation if Adam had obeyed. And so let us see how that is, how it is that what we have in Christ is far more than we ever lost in Adam. And I think the way to appreciate the contrast, the force of the not as, is to consider the various contrasts at play. And so really my interest here is to summarize the passage and to notice all the dissimilarities between Christ and Adam, all of which uh, have the effect of making us see how much better things are in Christ than they would have been even if Adam had obeyed. Seven points of contrast, seven ways in which Christ our head exceeds Adam. And the first thing we must appreciate here is That it is the difference, and I'm speaking generally, the difference between something negative and something positive. Adam was our federal head, just as Christ now is, but what we got from him was negative. What we got from Adam was negative. It was something bad. It was sin and death and condemnation. On the side of Adam, it was the infliction of a penalty on all. Of course, Adam and Christ are the same as federal heads. But can't you see how different they are in their federal headships on the side of Christ? It's something different altogether. There you find blessing and life and justification for all who are in him. What a contrast just when you consider this single point. Do you realize what a difference there is? Paul is saying in these three verses between being in Adam and being in Christ. It is simply the difference between something bad and something good. Something positive and something negative. And so we must start there. But then if you, as a second point, if you look at the first phrase, you see it as the contrast between a free gift and an offense. For the free gift is not like the offense, he says. And the idea of gift continues throughout. It's a word I think you find in every verse, if not multiple times. Do you see Paul is saying how different these two things are? The difference between an offense and a gift. On the one side, that of Adam, you have an offense. You have transgression, the breaking of the law. And by his transgression, sin and death pass to all. But the free gift, Paul is saying, come to the other side. It isn't like the offense at all. 
which he later explains like this. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. Appreciate the difference he's saying. And here you see the characteristic much more and the idea of grace come in. That's the second part of verse 15. As a way of explaining the way the gift is not like the offense. On the one side you have the infliction of a penalty by the one offense. But on the other side you have simply a free gift from God to man. Again I ask you. Can you appreciate the difference between these two things? One is the wages of sin. All bad for all who are involved. And in this God appears terrible to all. But on the other side, God simply bestows his favor and blessing as a gift. Freely offered to man. That word free also appears throughout these verses. Not that which man deserves, you see. Simply that which God is pleased to give freely as a gift. And that is what salvation is, beloved. It is the free gift of uh, of God to man. Though he deserved the opposite. And so this brings us now to the third point of contrast. And you may even be anticipating it. It is the difference between grace and justice. Or law and grace. You could... You could contrast it either way, although it seems justice is a little more precise here because he speaks of condemnation. He speaks of judgment on the side of Adam, but free grace, all grace on the side of Christ. Although, let me be quick to say, it is not as though justice is bad and grace is good or that God is more gracious than he is justice. Sometimes I hear people saying that. That always makes me uncomfortable. I don't think that's the point of the contrast. God is just as just as he is gracious. And he, but thank God he's just as gracious as he is just. Both are good in the eyes of God and indeed in the eyes of man. And God is glorified in the exercise both of his justice and his grace. Think of Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. How much his glory appears to us in both. But you tell me, O oh man, O oh sinner... On the basis of which of the two would you rather deal with God and stand before him? On the basis of strict justice, where the sin of one leads to the death of all? Or on the basis of the gift of grace through this one man, Jesus Christ? Surely we can say that both are right for God to do. But one is better by far. We see in Adam, and for all who are his, a justice That is strict and severe, but no more and no less than the law itself demands. The wages and penalty of sin are measured out according to the exact measure of the crime itself. Again, no further, no less. A perfect symmetry. That's the side of justice. And how glorious does God appear in his judgment and in his justice. But look to the other side, Paul is saying. And do you notice that in the realm of grace, you are dealing once more with that which is freely given. Not that which is deserved, but that which is undeserved. And do you realize that it is of the very essence of grace to abound on the side of justice symmetry, but on the side of grace there is dissymmetry. 
It is how much further God goes than we deserve. The free gift, Paul says, abounded to the many. For that is what grace does. It always abounds. More and more to the sinner. This is uh, what we found uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's what you find at the end of what Paul says. Listen to this. Verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace abounded much more. So the very nature of the contrast helps us to see how Christ blesses us far beyond what we ever lost in Adam. As John Murray says, grace does more than negate the negative. Let me say again, it does not simply state us back or or, or place us back into the state of innocence where we, like Adam, might still fall. No, it takes us beyond that and it confirms us in righteousness and it does so freely. It places us in a state where we now cannot fall, taking us beyond what we lost in Adam. To those who did not deserve to be considered righteous, it now freely considers them righteous. The grace of God. Now just think about that. You see the two sides are not equal at all. You compare both sides. And the balance falls decidedly. On the side of the free gift. Of grace to those who deserve the opposite. But then we notice something else. You remember I said there were seven points of comparison. There is a major difference between. The one and the many, which comes out in verses six, uh, in verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned for judgment, uh, which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Did you notice the subtle difference there? Judgment was inflicted on account of one sin, but the free gift took into account many Sins, the difference between the one and the many. Whereas by one sin, the many were judged. That's the side of judgment. In salvation, the sins of many are forgiven and covered. Again, I ask you, do you notice the difference at play? Do you see how Christ's work goes beyond that of Adam's? He not only covers the sin of the one, the original sin that that led to all of this, but he even includes the sins of the many. That is the sins of all of us that we commit every day. His work is that great. It can deal not only with the original sin, but all of the sins that followed in its wake. And so here is another way that grace abounds in comparison to strict justice, whereas Justice required only one transgression to inflict the penalty of death upon all. Grace causes the sins of many to be covered. And in this, Paul says, grace simply abounded. It made more than an adequate provision for the sins of many, not just the sin of Adam. And so it takes us far beyond where justice ever did. But next, as a fifth point of contrast, I would notice perhaps the strongest point of contrast by far. And that is 
between the two men themselves. There is the one man, Adam, and there is the one man, Jesus Christ. How can you read these verses and not appreciate that is the great contrast at play? That that is the greatest point of difference that is to be found here. Not all that followed in their wake, either of obedience or disobedience, but simply the men themselves. Yes, of course, we know they both were placed under a covenant of works as the head of humanity. Both in that sense were named Adam. But do you realize how much more God is able to do for humanity by the second Adam? Have you begun to appreciate that point? For the first Adam was but a man, a perfect man, admittedly uh, created in righteousness, holiness and knowledge. But he was never anything more than a man, a created person. Do not underestimate his importance for all must reckon for his sin. Uh, Hell is full now because he fell. But at the same time, as a man, he could only do so much. And we see in the garden. That as a man, he was capable of falling. That is, even in his innocence, Adam, the man, was capable of sinning. Of course, we know he might have done the opposite, but he didn't. And in this, we notice his weakness, his frailty. That he might have fallen, weak as he was, and that in fact he did fall. How woeful this consideration becomes if he had been our only hope and our only head. The only one by whom we might deal with God. Our only Adam. But alas, Paul says, he is not. And thank God for that. For there is one infinitely better and stronger than Adam. Who is also called by that name. Jesus Christ. The second Adam. And the son of God. Uncreated. Full of the glory of God. And though he becomes one like us. And one like Adam. A man. He was ever without sin. And never did he have even the slightest inclination to sin. Not for a single moment of his life. Here was one, unlike Adam, who could not fall. Though he was tempted worse than Adam ever was. And worse than any of us ever will be. And it is to him, you realize, throughout the New Testament. And this is the essence of the apostolic preaching. It is to him and not to Adam that we guilty sinners are bid to come and to no other. Do you realize who he is? Jesus Christ, the second and greater Adam. And what God was doing by the one man, Jesus Christ. There is the whole essence and the glory of the gospel. That I am called as a preacher to preach to you always the greater glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, Paul says, If by one man, Adam, many were condemned, how much more shall we enjoy justification and life if we now be found in this greater Adam? Can you feel the force of the argument here? The importance, yes, of the underlying similarity, but the greater glory which is found in the contrast. If Christ should stand in our place Do you see now how much more we might receive from him? Not only does he undo what Adam did for us, but he takes us far beyond where Adam might have ever taken us simply because of who he is, the very son of God. 
and our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But let me notice as a sixth point of contrast, the structure of Adam's sin in comparison to the structure of Christ's obedience. And here again, I'm summarizing what is said in these three verses and what is uh, said again in verses 18 and 19. And so we ought to keep these things in mind. The structure of Adam's sin is compared to the structure of Christ's obedience. The structure of Adam's sin might be stated simply in three stages. He sinned, thus he was condemned, or he was judged. Those two words are used, number two, and thus he died. Sin, judgment, death, or sin, condemnation, death. Taken uh, together, that is the teaching of these verses on the one side. By the sin of the one man, the one sin, condemnation and death came not only to him but to all. Sin, condemnation, death. But on the other side, again, appreciating the greater glory on the other side of the contrast, we notice the structure of Christ's obedience is answering to Adam's sin on all three points precisely. There is obedience, justification, and life. Or obedience, righteousness, and life. Again, the second category is stated variously, but it amounts to the same. But again, let me just notice, he is answering to Adam's sin. Whereas Adam sinned, Christ obeyed. He did so perfectly. He came to do the will of his Father, and so he did. All the way to the end, a perfect obedience rendered unto God on behalf of all. Now, now this point... If you want me to say more, it will be said in the next sermon. This is a great point, so I'm just beginning to introduce it. What was the result of his obedience? Paul says, justification. A declaration of righteousness now bestowed upon him in his resurrection, having completed his obedience until the end of his death. And now, Paul says, that that verdict of righteousness, justification, is rendered Upon all who are in him. Just as surely as all who are in Adam are condemned for his sin. So now those who are in Christ are justified by his righteousness. By his perfect obedience. Thereby he achieved a righteousness that he might bestow or impute to our account. But to take the thought all the way. Not only did he take us out of the realm of condemnation and place us in the realm of righteousness, which is found in his own person. But as a third stage, now no more is death reigning in the life of the believer. But he is said to be reigning in death. Verse 17. Not only is the believer justified in Christ, in Christ but as a result, life is now our domain. No longer death. Death is, uh, let us say, something which simply happens to us. But it doesn't reign over us. It doesn't rule or dominate our existence. And it cannot hurt us. In fact, now it helps us. Because it is the vehicle which brings us into the very presence of Christ himself. Now, Paul says, we are reigning in Christ. For he is our justification and life before God. And again, we can simply notice as the greater point, how much more do we have through Christ before God than we ever lost in Adam? But as a final point, and as I think the most important point, so obviously I would wish to close with this thought. Bringing home the force of all that 
has been said, we see the real force of the much more. And it is this. It amounts to a declaration of certainty. It amounts, it is, to a declaration of assurance. Those who are in Christ, those who have been justified by faith, are meant to enjoy an invincible and an infallible assurance of faith. And how do they ever get there? Well, they have to see Christ in comparison to Adam. Not, you see, just Christ in comparison to myself, but even beyond that, Christ in comparison to Adam. And when I look at that comparison, I ought to be able to arrive at certainty. For if the one thing has happened, if on the side of Adam condemnation and death came to me certainly and invincibly by Adam's sin, as an objective fact that that does not depend on my feelings, before I ever sinned or obeyed, I was condemned for Adam's sin, and I die because Adam sinned, then how much more certain will justification and life come to me if I am in Christ. If we are sure to die in Adam because of his sin, how much the greater may we be sure that we will be justified and reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the argument. And that is the structure and the method of salvation. Salvation is not made to depend upon you and your own righteousness. Not anymore. You see, then you were condemned and you die because you sinned. It is made to depend entirely by the obedience of the one. Appreciate once more the contrast at play. As in, as in Adam, the many are counted sinners and are thus subject to condemnation and death. Oh, but look to the other side, Paul says, and see in Christ there is the bestowal of grace. All grace, free grace. The free gift of righteousness, he calls it, freely offered to all the sons of Adam. And God says to man, just as surely as I consider you a sinner and will damn you for Adam's sin, I will freely count you as righteous in the righteousness of my own son achieved for you. Just as surely as I do the one thing, I will do the other. And will you not come unto him, God says, and drink freely of the waters of life and be saved? How easily we might get out of Adam and into Christ. How easily we might get out from under the reign of condemnation and death and find ourselves under the dominion of righteousness and life. For nothing we have done. But all for what Christ has done for us. If only, God says, we would come. For all who cry unto his name will be saved. All who look for righteousness before God. Not in themselves nor in Adam. But solely in Christ. For he is the end of the law unto righteousness to all who believe. Yes, and they will be counted as righteous in him. And they will reign in life. And to you doubting sinner who lacks assurance. But who has come and who has sought refuge before God and Jesus, I say to you, you have far more reason to be sure and to enjoy assurance than perhaps you realize. If only you could realize how surely Christ has saved you and how certain your standing is now before God. Not for anything you have done, but because Christ has done all and solely because he has. And now in him. God says to his church, 
I am pleased freely to bestow upon you every grace which is found in him. The abundance of grace that is found in his very person. This is the blessing of the church, of those who are in Christ. This indeed, as Paul says, is the grace in which we now stand and from which we can never fall. Amen. And let us now come to the table. at Luke this morning, the words of institution as found in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the, of the vine until uh, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who could who would do this thing. Well, I want to stress here just very briefly. uh, And I remember reading this long ago in Burkhoff in preparation of my own ordination (laughs) uh, exams in my case. Uh, But as a means of grace, uh, and I was especially struck by this, seeing it as a seal the thing that God was sealing uh, was uh, was our salvation. In other words, God is is offering assurance. He wants us to see uh, that that He takes a real interest in the church, and that insofar as we have faith, uh, then we ought to be sure of our salvation. So when we look at the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, we ought to remember what Jesus Christ is saying, that the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And this is my body, he says, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, and as I like to quote, just as surely as we hold the piece of bread in our hand and the cup of wine in our hand as well. We may be sure that Christ is declared and so he has done uh, that his blood and his body were given for our salvation. We are meant to have an assurance. That's the point. Let us see the Lord's Supper as a chance to get it. But I also uh, I also ought to warn the impenitent and the wayward, the one who lacks faith, the one who despises the table. Uh, That you ought not to come. And there is, every time we read that in the institution, there is the reminder of the apostate at the table. And we see how quickly he fell after having just taken the Lord's Supper. That was his final act uh, before he was uh, bound in iniquity. And so let us be careful as we come, but having faith and seeking assurance 
uh, with that simple and sincere desire, I bid you to come. And with those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift here of the Lord's Supper. And we ask you that through this means of grace, we might be strengthened not only in faith, but unto assurance. And that we would be able with Paul to, to reach unto the very heights. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.